Amen. Uh, would you join me? Uh, Romans 11, one more time. Romans 11. Well, we'll admit in about three weeks, uh, we will probably read the last few verses again in Romans 11, but this will be the last time uh, for a while. You know, you never get away from the truths of Romans. They're so prevalent in Scripture. Uh, but today we'll, we'll finish up chapter 11, and that's a section of Romans 9, 10, and 11. Hey, I'm going to start today's message with something I literally could say every week, okay? Every week we could say this, and here it is. The goal of today's message, the stated goal, is that you and I will know God better than we walked in here knowing God. Now, the key is this, to know God better as he is. So let that be your goal. Because I'm going to tell you, though we've already really come through it, I will allude briefly to some things that are just unnatural to us, but they are the truth because we have them from Scripture. And as we allude to them, if you've missed part of those sections, you're going to do like me when I first read these things and we're going to bristle at them. And so the goal to know God better as he is, listen, not as we would have him be. Not as we would invent him, not as we would think him up if we were imagining a God. What if you have that as the goal? Lord, I want to really know you. Now, having said that, if anyone walks away today thinking, you know what? I think I finally pretty much comprehend God. I think I finally got it. You miss the point of today's message if you come away with that. You said, Jeff, you just said, we hope we know God better. And if someone says, I think I pretty much now can, can understand and comprehend God. Yeah, you're getting ready to see. If you reach that conclusion, you miss the truth of this passage. I'm not going to do a long introduction. Uh, usually we read a, a bit more scripture than we do. Uh, we're going to focus on the last four verses of chapter 11. It's a doxology of praise that goes really well with all that we've been singing already this morning. But I'm going to back up to about half of last week's passage. And in a moment, we'll look at verse 29. So real quick, last week we did a long introduction and lots of review. Today is a short review. Uh, and it would go something like this. I don't really have one planned. I'll just say this. We've been seeing this Jewish section, and all indications are that God's promises to the Jews are not happening, and yet Jesus is the Messiah, and they're rejecting him, and so things do not seem to be on pace, and all these wonderful promises are only good if God follows through on them, and if he doesn't follow through on them, then he can't be trusted, and if he can't be trusted, all those wonderful things about our security, our eternal security in Romans 8, they mean nothing as well. So everything's tied to, is God a trustworthy God? And the answer is yes. So if Israel is not coming to the Lord, and most of them, frankly, are not going to heaven over the last 2,000 years, that's quite a dilemma. The answer is, of these three chapters, is that all along, God knew all along, and even, I'm sorry, I'm not sorry, it's truth. God designed it all along that only a remnant of them would be saved. And if you've not been with us for a while and you just paid attention, that sentence bothers you. But it's only a remnant. You say, will it always only be a remnant? And the answer is no. Last week's chapter passage uh, verses 25 to 32 made it very clear. All Israel will be saved. So this is not every single Jew who's ever lived. There's coming a point, I believe, in history when, a point in, I'm sorry, not in history, in the future, when Christ will return, the Jews will recognize him. He really is the Messiah. We've rejected him for 2,000 years. And then they will accept him. And that generation of Jews that are alive at that time all of them will put their faith and trust in Christ and he will rescue them from the armies of the Antichrist. And then after that, man, we usher in really the millennial kingdom, thousand-year reign, uh, where we come back to the same earth as the curse is lifted. So with all of that, so can God's promises be trusted? What about all these promises to Abraham and his descendants? It's going to happen, just not quite maybe how you thought in the original reading of the Old Testament. Look with me, if you would, verse 29. 
We'll read verse 29 down to 32, and I'll probably use that as a little intro before we really focus today on 33 to 36. How can we say this about the Jews? All Israel is going to be saved. Are we going to go out and win them by our evangelistic efforts? No, that's not going to work. Christ will win them himself. The deliverer will come. Verse 29, why? For the gifts. When God gifts someone something and gives them something and graces a person for the gifts and the calling. When God draws. This is going to be a key phrase you'll hear in a couple of passages. When God calls a person, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They cannot be taken back. They cannot be called off. If you fit in that, you receive his gifts, he's put a calling on you, you're going to come to him, and you're going to have eternal life with him as part of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And then Paul pans out and gives us this big overview, verses 30 to 32. For he's talking to Gentiles. For just as you, you could look at that as you as an individual or us as Gentiles. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So for 2,000 years, Israel's anticipating their Messiah. God sends them their Messiah They don't believe in him. They reject him. You don't fit what we're looking for. They commit a great trespass. They kill their Messiah. Lord willing, we'll look at that next week. I want to be here next week as we will look. I don't know where we'll start, but something in the Passion Week leading up to the cross. And Lord willing, we will finish at the cross next week. So they commit this great trespass, but that's not all. They continue in failure by not... Seeing the light. Oh, you fulfilled all those scriptures. We see how you came to pay for our sins. Now we'll receive you. No, they continue in failure, rejection. So what has God done? What God has done is because of their rejection, he's opened the door to the Gentiles, and we don't even have to become Jewish. We get in on the blessings just by merely believing in Jesus Christ as Savior. And so now, Paul, look at verse 30 again. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So there, again, a few Jews, a remnant is being saved, but the vast majority are not. But the Gentiles, not all Gentiles, but many, literally hundreds of millions of Gentiles. We could even say billions of Gentiles in the last 2,000 years have come to Christ. Like, wow, didn't really see that coming. Verse 31, so... They too, the Jews, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy, same kind of mercy, by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. He's still talking about how this all Israel, those who are alive, that generation that will see Christ return, they're going to get in on it. Same mercy that saves us is going to return and save them. Verse 32 is a real snapshot. Watch this. This is a real overview. For God has consigned all to disobedience. Why? That he may have mercy on all. Guys, this is a big picture one. Verse 32 is a big picture verse. God has put everybody in a category. And we use a word I'm going to use a couple times a day and you may not like it. God's designed it, planned it such That all mankind, every single one of us, but we could say in in context, Jews and Gentiles, all are disobedient. Why? So that he could have mercy on all Jews and Gentiles. Individuals, not all people, not everyone will go to heaven. All those who put their faith and trust in Christ. All of us have committed sin and trespasses and committed failures. We've all been designated over in the disobedient group. So that God, his plan all along, so that I'm going to give mercy. I'm going to give mercy to Jews and to Gentiles. And now Paul launches into this closing doxology that is extremely fitting finale for Romans 9, 10, 11. Verse 33. Oh, the depths. Oh, the depth. It's deep. It's deep. Too deep, we could say, for us. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom. And knowledge of God. Read that again. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. I grew up always reading the King James and there's a slight little variation. It does not harm the text. Those of you that have memorized that passage, here's what it says. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. It focuses on the depth 
of God's wisdom and knowledge, just like this verse, but that, that translation takes the word riches as how thick is the depth, mainly focusing on, on the wisdom and the knowledge, whereas this one says actually the word riches is in the same category with wisdom. Oh, the depth of the riches of God. Oh, the depth of the wisdom of God. Oh, the depth of the knowledge of God. Verse 33 in the middle. The sooner we settle this next sentence in our minds, the better it will go for us today in this message. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. A couple of rhetorical questions coming up, three of them. Who, for who, has known the mind of the Lord? I know the mind of the Lord. No, you don't. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Uh, God, uh, we need to talk. Have a seat, Lord. Or who has given a gift to him? You say, I have. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Lord, you remember I did that, so you kind of owe me. These are rhetorical, same answer all three questions, you figure out the, name, the answer to the question. It's based out of verse 36. For, from him, and through him, and to him are all things. Let's read that line again. For from him are all things, all things came from God. All things, not just things you could touch, ideas. Everything. All things came from him. All things are through him. Like right now. They're right now existing through him. All things to him. They will be going back to him. We'll finish there. And then ultimately Paul says, To him be glory forever. Amen. Verse 32, Paul gives us this glimpse. Verse 30, 32, it's like overview. There's a time period where there's Adam and Eve and, and, and uh, Cain and Abel and, and Seth and, and they know about God and they have a relationship with God and they have descendants and descendants, but it doesn't take long. Mankind is forgetting about God and Romans 1 alludes to it, how they're unthankful and became vain and futile and violent and God has to destroy the whole planet, saving only eight people. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their daughters, just eight people. And then there, I'm never going to destroy them again like that. But I had to get rid of all that group. But it doesn't take long. We start sinning again and again and again. But God's determined he's not going to do that that way again. But now, uh uh-oh, they're committing more sin. And they're getting these crazy ideas. And so he has to confound our languages. And he splits the land. And off we go. And we have these different types of people all around the different parts of the world. But then God singles out this man named Abraham and he tells him, I'm going to grace you and I'm going to have a relationship with you and a covenant and your descendants. But we know it's only a remnant of them will be saved. 2,000 years ago, their Messiah comes. They reject him. They crucify him. They continue to reject him. And God said, Paul says, in that time period, God's turning his attention to the Gentiles. But there will be a fullness of the Gentiles that will come to Christ. That will kind of fill up. And then he'll turn his attention back to the Jews, back at the end of the tribulation period. And then the whole of them that are left are going to be saved. And he gives us this snapshot. And he leads into this doxology. Everybody's put in a category of disobedience so that God can show mercy. Here's the man who knows more. I'm not going to go into all these terms. He knows more about the sovereignty of God, the predestination of God, the election, the foreknowledge. I mean, the nation of Israel, his plan, his purposes. He knows, Paul knows more than anyone else. And what does he do when he gets to the conclusion of three chapters of writing about this? Here's his answer. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways. And, his, and his way, how inscrutable are his ways. I just, you know what Paul's saying? I don't get it. It's over my head. No, 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 Paul, you know more than anyone. You know more than Augustine. Peter, the great Peter, says that God has shown you things he hasn't shown the rest, and they're hard to understand. But you know, you know all these things. You know more than Calvin and, and Augustine and, and, and Edwards and Owen. And you know more than all of those guys. You're Paul, and Paul says, I, I, know, I know what God has shown me, and I know I've just written about it for three chapters, but it's way over my head, and it's way too deep, and I really don't get it. 
I only get a glimpse. I can tell you what God's doing. I can tell you why. I don't understand the real reasons, though. It's too deep. Much too deep. And then he lays out several concepts. So I'm going to pull four out of verse 33. And we'll look at these for a few minutes. I'll go ahead and tell you. The first point is 65% of the message. It's by far the longest part. Three main thoughts today. Three main thoughts, I think, come from this text. Number one, pretty evident. God, this is, this is deep now, okay? This is deep. God is different than man, right? Like, oh, okay. That's what we're supposed to be getting. Yeah, I hope by the end of the message, you realize more than ever, God is different than man. Now, we have these four terms that I want to take a few minutes to look at each one. First of all, and I'm going to reverse the order. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches. Look at that a little later. And wisdom. Look at that in a moment. Riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Let's talk first about what is this knowledge of God. Okay. Now, you're going to have to pretend for a moment. Let's say we have a big piece of chalk, all right? You've got to pretend with me. Here we go. We're going to the back parking lot because this one out here is not big enough. We're going to clear everything out. We're going to make a 100-foot circle. 100-foot diameter. We're going to make a big circle. What that circle represents is all knowledge. So just it's represented, just pretend it represents all knowledge. You're like, what do you mean by all knowledge? It will sound silly, but what I'm saying is if anything could be known, if given enough time and enough research, resources to research it out, then we could know this piece of knowledge, and all of it goes in there. In other words, could we know exactly how many hairs are on all of our heads in this room? You're like, there's no way. To, if given time, we literally could get maybe, I don't know how many people, but we could sh- maybe we just shave all our heads, put it in a pile, somebody gets tweezers, and after about a year and a half, they come back and tell us how many millions of uh, hairs there are in here, right? Is that knowable? Okay, if it's knowable here, could we go across over there and let's include the people that are in the, in the, the apartments over there and maybe the houses over here. Could we just keep going and go? Could it be possible to know every, the exact number of hairs on every head in the world today? You're like, that's possible. That'd be kind of silly, but yeah, possible, yes. Is it possible for someone to know Guys, I'm talking about the kind of knowledge, this is all knowledge in this 100-foot circle. I mean the kind of knowledge I shared with somebody the other day that kind of like knows a perfect bracket in the March Madness before it comes out, right? I wish God would give me that one year. I do. I wish I could know April 2nd's end result with all the scores last week about last Saturday. I'd be set. I don't condone gambling but it's not gambling if God tells me what will happen. And I could, I mean, Vegas would not like me because I would wipe them out. Never gambled in my life, but uh, maybe I did when I was a kid. Pennies, toothpicks, things like that. But anyway, chips. I got to move on. All knowledge. Guys, what I'm talking about is all knowledge. What if we were to get silly? Is it possible to know every blade of grass? Literally every grain of sand. I'm not talking about the carnival where the guy, if you can tell how many, if you can get within a hundred of how many pennies are in the five-gallon bucket, you get to keep all the pennies. I'm not talking about that. I mean all knowledge. Literally everything that's ever had a thought, every thought of all the things that's ever had thought. Insects, I guess they have thoughts because they scurry from the light or they feel pain and they have thoughts. We know that the animals have thoughts. Human beings, the spirit world, every thought. The number of the stars. The number of distance from our sun to the next closest star and every other star and every star within all the stars and all the distances between it and every and you're just like, there's no way those calculations just keep going. This circle represents all knowledge and we've literally just scratched the surface. So here's my question. After we make this circle that represents all knowledge and we give you the piece of chalk and said, now you go inside the circle and you make another circle that represents your knowledge. All knowledge, for all time, every area. It would take me an hour to hit many, many more, but we don't have time. Here's the chalk. If you're properly thinking, you're thinking, I don't need chalk. I don't need a ballpoint pen. I don't need a needle like you have needle and thread dipped in it. 100 foot sounds big, but what you just described, my knowledge compared to that doesn't even, I don't even need to make a mark. Guys, God has all knowledge. And he's not straining to have 
Oh, my. Oh, just change the number of the hairs. They just scratched their head and one fell. What's the new number, Gabriel? I don't know. I lost track. God is not straining. Secondly, oh, the depth of the wisdom of God. If you want to write it down, you say, what in the world's the difference between wisdom and knowledge? God's wisdom is his knowledge applied. We could say applied skillfully. It is the idea of God having skill in action. All that knowledge. What would you do with all knowledge? This is God's skill in action. Once again, I'm not going to do it. I'll choose one or two or three areas to illustrate. You literally need to go home and just think. The wisdom of God, his ways of, his, his just knowing how to do the right thing the right way, the best way of accomplishing it. You can see it in a, one, 10 billion times 10 billion ways. Guys, literally, no, no kidding. The wisdom of God is seen. I mean, the obvious ones, we're not at a perfect distance from the sun. We're at the perfect distance from the sun. We're on this little hidden, invisible axis, and we're spinning, and we have gravity, and there's this orbit that keeps us at the right distance from the sun. And then God was wise enough to put a moon around our planet, and that moon reflects the light of the sun at night, and it shifts our tides around. This is extremely important. God was wise enough to cover the, our planet, 70% of water, roughly somewhere around that, most of which is this salt water, great salt water oceans and great salt water seas, and it becomes a big wash basin. So all these pollutants that would do us in, it goes out there, and it's, it, it, you know, it's moved by the, by the clouds, and it's rain down there and they get washed out or they filter down to the ocean and it just goes through the wash tub. But God knows we can't live with just salt water. And so he puts fresh water around us. We have Lake Hartwell around here. He puts it above us. He puts it beneath us. God knows we have to have it to cool ourselves and to hydrate ourselves and to clean ourselves. Give him some fresh water. And then God invents and creates these ideas of vision and hearing and taste and touch and smell. And he gives us the perfect things for us to be able to see and hear and taste and touch and smell. And God just, in his wisdom... and Really, we could get silly. I know it sounds silly, but aren't you glad in his wisdom he put our eyes at the top of our body? It's so wise. What good would it do if our eyes were on the end of your big toe? What perspective would that be? Just imagine going through it. It'd be totally different. If your nostrils were the other way, that would be a bad thing. I know we say about, ah, you turn up your nose at everybody. It would be more than arrogant. It would be dangerous when it rains. Really, really, it would be bad. But God's wise. He puts our ears on the side of our head. God knows what he's doing. He's so wise. God gives us teeth that bury some chomp, some tear, some grind. We got really lucky in that whole evolutionary thing, right? Took us a while, but we worked it out. You have a lot of faith if you believe that. God is wise. He makes us body and soul and spirit. And those are just samples. I'm going to say something because it's going to apply for the rest of the message. Those are just samples. But listen, everything God does, He does with wisdom, all wisdom, which means He does it the best way it can be done. Everything God does is done with all wisdom. He's perfect in His way. Everything He does... He does it with all wisdom. It's the best it can be done. Verse 33, look at it. Let's get our third word. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. Well, here we go. What are his judgments? These are God's thoughts. We could say his decrees. We could say these are God's purposes. His purposes, God's thoughts, God's decrees, listen, they're not like ours. God is different than man. He doesn't think like you. He doesn't have an agenda like yours. I promise you. You say, is it possible for us to know the agenda, the plans, the purposes, the decrees? Is it possible for us to know the thoughts of God? I think, yes, not exhaustively, as we'll see, but I think we can know much of it. Here's the thing, though. Here's the key. If we'll read the word of God and let it say what it says, and if we'll get away from this default thinking, here's our, I'm telling you our default thinking, it's mine. Yeah, God's there for me. 
If our default thinking is God's there for me, God's there for us, you're going to miss the purpose and the plan, the decrees and the thoughts of God because they're not like ours. His thoughts, purposes, plans are unsearchable. You say, well, where are they? Verse 32 gave you a glimpse. He's like, I'm going to have all in this category of disobedience so that I can show my mercy. I want to show my mercy. So to do that, I'm going to have to have all in this category of disobedient. And we don't like that. But his ways are unsearchable. They're not our ways. Go with me if you would. You say, I want want to kind of know what does the Bible have to say about the purposes of God. Let's look at just a couple of samples. Go back to Romans 8. I want to encourage you real quick. Actually flip there. I will only have verse 29 on the screen. I should have had verse 28. But verse 28 actually has the word purpose in it. So I should have gone back there. I'm going to read verse 28. Here's what the Bible says. And we, we, not everyone, believers in Christ, we know, we know this, that for those who love God, I've got to ask you, do you love God? Do you really love God? For those who love God, all things, take this as a promise, all things work together for good. In the end, all things work together for good. For who? Here it comes. Is this you? For those who are called according to his purpose. God has a purpose. He has thoughts. He has decrees. He has ways of looking at things. He even states some of them. He's getting ready to say what that purpose is. If you have been called according to his purpose, if you fit into that aspect of God's purpose, everything works out for your good in the end. Can't miss it. Verse 29, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Verse 29, so what is this purpose? For those... Whom he foreknew, we've already seen in past weeks, that foreknew is not just God knowing in advance who would put their faith in Jesus. It literally is the idea, those whom he foreordained, those whom he foreknew, foreordained, he also, watch this, here's the purpose, plan, judgments of God. Here it comes. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, predetermined a destination. Of what? That they will be conformed. To the image of his son. That's like part B of the purpose. That those he knows, he foreknows, those he predestined, they will be conformed to the image of his son. Why? Here comes the main part of the purpose. In order that he, his son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Here's God's plan and purpose. Here's a snapshot of it. Here's one way to look at it. There's only God. And God determines that God the son will be the first among many brethren. Many brothers and sisters, through faith in him, and it's not going to stop stop there, they're going to be image bearers, reflections like him in nature and character and conduct. They're going to be, that's what God's doing. He's making many brothers and sisters of Christ, and he's making them like Christ. You say, okay, i got to get that one. I kind of like that one. That's really good. Flip over to chapter 9. You may not like this one, but let's just let the Bible say what it says. Romans 9, again, this is a quick review, verse 21. Verse 21. Unsearchable are the judgments of God because here comes a snapshot of the judgment of God. Has the potter, Paul asks a question, has the potter no right over the clay? And we say, yes, the potter has full rights. He's the potter, he can do whatever he wants with a piece of clay. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use? Well, sure he can. And another for dishonorable use? Sure he can. Potter can do anything he wants. Paul is using this as an analogy where God is the potter, we're the clay. He can make vessels of honor, he can make vessels of dishonor. That's his free prerogative. Verse 22. What if God... Desiring to show his wrath. You say, what are the judgments and thoughts and decrees and purposes and plans of God? What if God, by the way, Paul is not saying, hypothetically, what if God made a choice and decided to do something? I'm not saying that's what he did, but if, then he has the power and the right. You agree with that? That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying is, this is what's happening, and you need to adjust your thoughts to what the scripture is teaching. You really need to go back and study 9, 10, and 11 if this is new. I I realize it would sound crazy what I'm about to say. But this is why his judgments are unsearchable. Verse 22. What if God, since God, desiring to show his wrath. 
I'll show my wrath against sin. And to make known his power. What if God has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? That's people. Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory. Like, I like that part. What if he's doing verse 22 and he's doing verse 23? In order to make known the riches of his glory, four vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. That's the judgment, plan, purpose of God. My son will be the firstborn among many. They will be like him. I will show my wrath. I will show my power. I will show the riches of my glory. Flip if you would. Ephesians chapter 1. We'll see another place. We've looked at this one before, so we'll not spend that long here. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be, verse 3. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Who's us? Us in Christ. Those who put their faith and trust in Christ, they're the ones eternally blessed. So much so that he says, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. There's the purpose, judgments, decrees, thoughts of God. This is the plan. He chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. You say, yes, that sounds like that Romans 8, 29, where those that are many brothers and sisters of Christ are going to be conformed to his image. Yes, here it is again. Verse, verse, at the end of verse 4 and verse 5, watch. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Well, what is it? Verse 6. To the praise of His glorious grace. It's all this. He, He wants His grace to be gloriously praised. His grace is glorious. He wants His glorious grace gliriously praised. To the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. The Beloved is Jesus. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom. Remember, He has all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will. So we actually can see. We can actually see what is God doing. What are his judgments and purposes and plans? He's made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. You've got to look at the long, the long view, not the little short view, not the day, not the hour, not the minute, not the thousand years, not the two thousand years. You've got to see the whole picture. It's a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things. By the way, when he purposes something, he makes it happen according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Why? So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And that's the judgments of God. Listen real carefully. This is subtle. You have an agenda and I have an agenda. You have thoughts. You have plans. You have decrees. You may not say them out loud, but you have a way of looking at life. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, you're like me. Here's our default. Left to ourselves, apart from Christ, apart from God, our plans and purposes and judgments and decrees are very selfish. It's all about me feeling good, having pleasure and comfort and maybe power and fame and you're the same way. Now here's, here's the subtle part. We read these three passages and we think, well, isn't God doing the exact same thing? He's made all of this so that he becomes all that. He's just doing on a bigger scale exactly what we all do on a smaller scale. So what's wrong with that? Here's the problem. This is why we don't understand his judgments and we make them the same. See, he's just doing on a large scale. We do the same thing on a smaller scale. I'm here to tell you, ours is selfish and sinful. His is not. And you say, how can that possibly be? He's God. He's the creator. We're neither one. That's why it's all about him. That's why Paul says in the end of the doxology, verse 33, to him be glory forever. 
It is wrong for us to just usurp. And I've got my own little agenda, my own little kingdom I'm building over here. And God, I'm just going to maverick and, and rebel and break off from what you made me to do. Fourth thing, back in chapter 11. Verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 33. How unsearchable are his judgments. And then how inscrutable his ways. So, so what are the ways of God? You want to write it down. The ways of God are the methods God uses to accomplish his purposes. So we have knowledge, all knowledge. Wisdom, his knowledge and skill in action. His judgments, this is his plans and purposes, decrees, thoughts. Well, here now we have his ways. That one seems pretty simple what it is. But Paul says his ways are inscrutable. I wrote this. Listen, I hope this grabs you, it grabbed me. God's, it's my, my belief right now, God's thoughts and his purposes are a deep, deep, deep mystery. Thoughts, purposes, judgments. But I think out of these words in verse, 20, in verse 33, his ways are the most confounding. They're the most confounding. Okay, that's, that's what you're after, Christ, firstborn, many image bearers like Christ, your glory. But God, the way you're going about getting to that, I'm just going to tell you, God, I wouldn't do it that way. And I, got, I, I, I wouldn't. I'm just, I'm going to confess to you. I've said it multiple times over the last three chapters. I would not run the universe the way God is running it. I would do it different. Of myself, there are times I think it's wrong. It's unfair. It's just not right. You know why I do that? Same reason you do. We have some warped, twisted thinking. And the Bible is trying to tell us the truth. And you're sitting there saying, no, 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 no. I've read these chapters. This is not right, what God's doing. I'm not saying it's not happening because it kind of is. I see this happening. And if this heaven and hell thing is true, like the Bible describes, this is just wrong. Yeah, that's because you're a human like me and that's the way you think. And God's judgments are inscrutable. We wouldn't operate history. We wouldn't operate creation the way God does. It's a bottomless, bottomless ocean depth that we can never fathom. You find the bottom, keep, keep, give it a little more line. Break, how far have we gone so far? Well, we've got this many tens of thousands of, of miles. Keep going. Surely you'll get, you cannot fathom the depths of God's ways. I thought this. What if your assignment was to track which path in the water a sailboat took in the Chesapeake Bay a month ago? There's a boat, that one right there, the one that's at the dock. It went 40 miles out in the Chesapeake Bay. I need you to tell exactly which path. you like, there's no, you can't decipher that. That's inscrutable. It doesn't leave a path. It's not understandable. I, I literally mean this. Understanding the ways of God is harder, I mean this, then if we took the youngest baby in our nursery this morning, whichever the youngest one is, and whichever one of you is the sharpest on trigonometry, you prop that little baby up, and as he's spitting all over, you teach them trigonometry. You have one hour to do it, and they have to get it. Sooner would an infant get trigonometry than we will, in this life, understand God's ways. God, I don't get your ways. I'm telling you, I do not get the ways of God. Here's what I do have. I have a Bible. You say, well, that tells us everything, right? The Bible is the clearest and most reliable revelation of God. It's the clearest and most reliable way I learn about God. I learn about God in providence, in creation. He's put his stamp on my soul. I have this thing called a conscience. I learn about him and all of this. But the Bible is the clearest. The Bible is the most reliable. But hear me, please. The Bible is not exhaustive. It's not even close to exhaustive. God is infinite. The Bible is not infinite. We have it right here. Its teachings go on and on because the God it's talking about goes on and on. But we have a Bible, but it doesn't tell us everything. You say, does it tell us enough for anything? Yes. The Bible helps us know some things about God, know, frankly, many things than those who don't study the Bible. But hear me, the Bible does give you enough to trust God. Can I trust Him? Read the Bible and you will learn. Had somebody tell me just this morning, Love this. That's Bill Vickery. He said, I've been going over and over and over Romans 9, 10, 11. He said, I think they're about to become my favorite chapters in all the Bible. And some of you are thinking, I hate these chapters and I can't wait till we get out of this. 
And I'm like, yes, yes, it affects everything. Everything is rooted in that. I loved hearing that because I concur. This is where it's at. This is God as he would have himself to be known, not as we would invent him. The Bible gives us enough to trust God and to love God. That's what you have. So I started today's message reading verses 29 to 32. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. This overview of history and creation and God's purpose. I'm going to tell you, you know what it looks like sometimes? This thing is off the rails. God, your plan and your decrees and your judgments, that's fine. They're really wild and different. But it isn't working. I'll say this more than once today if you want to write it down. Romans eleven twenty nine to 32 reminds us that God has a master plan. Listen, everything is right on schedule. Everything's right on schedule. And if you're thinking, you're probably contemplating, well, that word everything's a little strong. You need to tone that down. Everything is right on schedule. I have to ask you a question. I want you, I'm going to ask these next two questions a little slowly, and we'll cover them quickly. Here it comes. You ready? Do you only believe what you understand? Taste that. Do you only believe what you understand? You're like, I, I'm just, I, I know people that are struggling with things about God believing. Are you only going to believe what you understand? Next question. Do you demand that God makes sense before you believe? If that's the case, you do not have faith, and the Bible demands faith. You have to have faith to go to heaven. You say, when I understand it and when God makes sense, then I'll believe it. I'm going to tell you, there are certain things in Scripture that are too confounding. You will not believe them. They will go way over your head. You cannot understand them because they're over your head. So what do you have to do? You have to take the Bible's word for it and just believe it. So Jeff, do you have any examples? I've got seven or eight. I'm going to hit them quick. Here's one. The Trinity of God. It's confounding. The Bible's very clear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. There is only one God. Only one God. There's not a hundred gods. There's not ten gods. There's not three gods. But the Bible is also clear. God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And each one of them is distinct. And you hear that and say, that's, that, no, that's not right. That's three gods then. That's not one. No, it's one God. Another one we cannot understand is the eternality of God. We can kind of fathom on and on and on to the future. What we really struggle with is eternity past. And if you just take about three minutes all alone, real quiet, try to think about eternity, God's eternity, eternality in the past, uh, you'll blow a fuse and, it'll, and you'll have a little, and it'll, you'll just realize, ah, I can't get that. Because if that's the case, then how do we really know that we're actually now? How do we know that now is now? Um, anyway. This next one's not going to make some, some of you very happy. And I've intentionally chosen these words. Listen before you write it. Some of the confounding things we'll miss if we only insist on understanding before we believe. This is confounding. That the plan of God designed and allowed. I really could shorten that by a word. Both words are accurate. That the plan of God allowed and designed for sin. That's confounding. God's plan and purposes designed sin. While at the same time, God himself is separate from sin. God's nature is opposed to sin. God hates sin. And yet God designed a plan. Verse 32, you saw it earlier. God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. This to do this. It confounds me. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. That seems to me like God is a sinner for creating it. And so we come up with these little games. No, he made this and they are the ones that he didn't have to make. And I'm not going into it long. I'm not going into that long. Got to keep moving. So Jeff, do you really believe what you just said? I do. It's as confounding to me. This is inscrutable to me that the plan of God designed and allowed for sin. But at the same time, I know that God's not a sinner and he's separate from sin and he hates sin. But I also know he can use it and turn it. Just write this down. I don't have time to develop it. The dual nature of Jesus Christ. 
He is fully God. He is fully man. The next one we've already talked about. The free election of God as the potter over the clay. That really bothers us. That is confounding to us. That seems so unfair to us. God is free to elect as the potter over us as the clay. Here's another one. This is confounding to me. I'm going to tell you, if we were to go back in eternity past, why God? Why would you even start something when you're foreordaining this whole plan that will demand your son, God the son, to become flesh the son who's eternal son who is not flesh who is perfect spirit why would you do this creation knowing there's going to be this disobedience that would demand this mercy that has to be rooted in something and so he your son who's eternal spirit perfect spirit is going to become a human being so he could die which we'll look at next week why would you do that God we are not worth it why would you do that that confounds me and he'll forever be a man and yet fully God, dual nature. This next one is the seventh one on my list. I'll have one more after. I'm going to tell you this next one is the one you hear out in the world. It is the least on this list. It is the least confounding. But for some people, maybe someone here, that's the one that really troubles me. So I'll throw it out. This really confounds some folks. it's It's the lightweight on this list. We find it confounding to understand how God could be righteous but allow trouble to come to the godliest of saints while many of the most wicked and cruel people seem to be blessed. Translation, how do you hear it on the streets? Why do bad things happen to good people? And that really confounds the world. Oh, if there really was a God, then this... That's not confounding if you'll read the Bible, Romans 1, 2, and 3. It is not confounding because you'll quickly realize, what's the answer? There are no... There are no good people. Anything above the baseline of judgment is grace. We don't deserve anything above that. Literally, you're sitting there right now. You say, I'm getting a little warm. That's fine. You deserve worse. I know I'm not making a lot of friends by preaching that way, but I'm just telling you like it is. That is not a big struggle, but that's the one the world struggles with. Here's one more. Go back, if you would. Look at chapter 8. No, 9. Look at 9. This one troubles me. Tell you straight up, this one troubles me. And it troubled Paul, and Paul had heard it before, and I'm not going into it, but he doesn't really answer it other than to tell us just be quiet. That's his answer. So verse 18, you see that? Romans 9, 18. So then he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills. He can have mercy on anybody he wants to. And he hardens whomever he wills. What? He has mercy on anybody he wants to and he hardens anybody he wants to and they'll receive judgment. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? These folks over here are only doing the very thing that they were designed. Pharaoh just did what he was raised up to do and God crushed him. God, you can't find fault. You can't judge the guy for doing that. And God says, my ways are inscrutable. So back to chapter 11, I'm gonna, before we hit the next two points very quickly, I'm going to tell you two common mistakes. That, no, not two. Four common mistakes I find that we do. Common mistakes we do with God. Number one, we try to define God with a few sentences. We really do. We find these cute little cliches and we make these and we, we scroll them all up and, we, and I'm not saying those are bad. They can be accurate and they can give an aspect of God. We've got to watch trying to define God with our few sentences and cute cliches. Do you really think, look at verse 34, do you really think you've known the mind of the Lord? Who has known the mind of the Lord? So I'm going to advise you, eventually we'll get to chapter 14. Until then... Be careful. Be be with me, because I've done this in the past. Be careful about speaking on God's behalf when God hasn't spoken. Because I've done that before. I've taught students things. Hey, God doesn't want us, and then off I go, and where's that in the Bible? He, I know this. (laughs) Okay? And it's not in the Bible. We've got to be real careful. Second thing we do is this. We assume if God does something a thousand times, You with me? Boy, he did that 91 times in a row. 91, nothing. We got reports coming in. Uh, 
that with this. God's done that 647 times in a row, just like that. A thousand times in a row, here's what we do. We assume he always will do what he's done a thousand times in a row. We assume, here's what we go next step. He has to do it the way he's done it a thousand times in a row. Be careful. Third one. We like to put him in nice little boxes, cute little manageable boxes, so we can put him away, and then when we need him, bring him out. Hey, look, I've got God right here. I've got him defined, and I've got him. I know what he does a thousand times in a row, a thousand and one. This is what he's going to do next time. And it really blows a circuit when he doesn't do it the thousandth and first time. But probably the worst one is this. We put God on trial. We set ourselves in our minds and in our conversations. We do. We put God on trial. We set ourselves up as judge. He's over here in the defendant's chair. And oh, by the way, we're not just the judge. We're over here. We're the prosecutor too. This is what we do. We prosecute God because of chapters like 9, 10, 11. And, we, and then we're up here. Well, I've evaluated. You made some great points, by the way. I made some great points there. Good job, prosecutor. I, as the judge, have determined God is not fair. We've made God get in the little stand over here. Here's the only problem. The earth is his footstool. The universe is minuscule next to him. God cannot be understood, much less explained by man. Listen, God has full rights to change course as he pleases. He never has to explain himself to anyone. And that blew the Jews' mind in the Old Testament. You can't do that. And God says, I'm God. But you've always done this. Do you have something holding me? I'm going to say, Jeff, are there no rules with God? Is it anything goes? With all that power, can he do whatever he wants? I want to be careful at saying this. I'm going to offer this. It probably needs to be more developed. I think the only things binding and putting boundaries on God, being God and doing what he wants, are two things. Just two things. And really it boils down to the first one. You say, what is it? His nature and his word. Catch that? Are there no rules on God? He can do anything he wants within the bounds of his nature And within the bounds of his word, if you catch him saying something and making a promise in the covenant, now you have something. Other than that, it's just conjecture. He is not bound by our ideas. God is not bound by our ideas. Number two, quickly. Not only is God different from man, God is independent of man. Told you we'd go back and hit it. Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches, the riches of God. God is extremely rich. Oh, there's a deep thing, right? Jeff studied this week and he came and told us that God's extremely rich. Okay. Now, God is infinitely wealthy. If you want to write some things down, the first two are not on your list. God is infinitely, infinitely wealthy, excess, plenty, despair, just more. And what? Grace, kindness. God is infinitely wealthy in time. It's called eternity. He has it. God is infinitely wealthy in time. Power. He is rich in power. He's rich in time. He's rich in fame. And he's rich in inherent glory. God is glorious and powerful. God is not bound by any limits of time. He's not stressing out like we do. Get this next sentence. He literally, God needs nothing. He needs no one. He doesn't need anything. No psychological help. No emotional help. He doesn't need any relationships. He doesn't need anything in the physical world. He doesn't need oxygen or food or rest. God needs nothing. You say, well, doesn't he want some things? If he needs nothing, he needs no one. Surely he wants some things. That's the thing. He's so rich. Anything he wants, he just creates it. Because he's wealthy. The depth of his riches. Verse 34. God is independent of man. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Only God was present when he purposed the course of creation. Only God was there in that meeting. I've already confessed to you, listen, we would do it differently, but here's the thing, we are wrong. We are wrong. Jeff would do it differently, but Jeff's wrong. God doesn't answer to me or to you. I I honestly thought, I'm looking right now, there's a truck out there, the sun is so bright that there is a reflection. It's kind of like, literally, it's kind of blinding my eyes there. I'm looking at it, but it's just the sun. Picture, there's this curve right out here on Centerville Road. What what, What if you saw me out there, and I have like a flag... Slow down. I'm telling people before they hit the curve, hold on. And I have a candle, right? I got my candle. Hold on. 
and they're back up. Give it a second. Hold on. This is a dangerous curve. And I light my candle on a day like today. All right, now go. I want you to see this curve. It's because I got my candle and I'm assisting the sun. My candle is going to help light the way. Now you can come on. Come on through. You're like, that, that would be an utter fool that would stand up. Hey, man, what are you doing? I'm, I'm just helping lighting the way. I got my candle. Sooner would you do that than to go into God's office and say, uh, move some things out of the chair across from his desk. Sit back with your arms crossed, maybe your leg, or maybe you do the old, you know, this or the fingers. Or maybe you lean forward and you're going to tell God how it is. And we've all been there. John Piper particularly points out, look at verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given to him that he might be repaid? Who's given a gift? He actually points, this is important, the one thing of all the things that Paul is saying, we can't give God anything, he points out the one thing that the lost person tries to give God. You ever seen it? God, we're not going to give you our love, we're not going to give you our worship, and we're not going to give you our trust, but I am going to give you a piece of my mind. And I'm going to give you my opinion. I'm going to give you my angry advice. Where were you? If you really are there. And here they're giving God counsel on how bad he's doing. Running their life or running the universe. And Paul says you have no rights to do that. Verse 35, look at it. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Pretend with me for a moment. Pretend you're extremely wealthy, rich like God is. And you give me $5 million. Okay, hypothetical. You give me $5 million. And I'm so thankful. I go out and I buy a $500,000 condo. And I'm like, hey, really, thank you so much. I bought you a $500,000 condo on the lake. I want to give it to you. If I do that, do you now owe me? Do you owe me? You say, Jeff, that's silly. You had nothing. I give you $5 million. You use my money to go get something for me. Guys, you know what Paul is saying? If you have an attitude of God, I've given you that money. If I added up all the money, it would be tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of dollars. God, you are surely aware of all I've ever done for you, all I've ever given to you. God, I gave you my possessions. You know what Paul is saying? You have never given anything to God that has put him in your debt. Why? To be clear, God owes you and me nothing. We owe him everything. We're just made things. We are made things For a purpose, I know we don't like that. We're made things for a purpose that was not our choosing. And the last point is this. Not only is God different than man, and God is independent of man, but number three, man is totally dependent on God. Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. From him, through him, And back to him, I added a word, back to him are all things. We begin coming from God. You say, where did I come from? You began from God. You literally exist right now, sitting there right now. I'm up here. You exist right now because of God, through God, and we will all go back to God. Here's the point, if you want to write it. He is the source. He is the sustainer. He is the goal. And the judge. From him, through him, to him, all things. He is the source. He's the sustainer. By him we live and move and have our being. He's the very goal of it all. It's his purpose and plan. We're created, made things. And he's the judge. God is always the giver. We're always the taker. He's always the accountant. We're always the accountable. Always. So we look at that, verse 36, and we say, all right, Jeff, one quick question. What is this all things, all things? This one's a little tricky, okay? For from him are all things, and through him are all things, and to him are all things. All things there literally means, say it, all things. I'm going to finish this paragraph, and then we're going to write some quick applications. And this last paragraph, I hope, is where you arrive at. Every man, woman, every angel, every fallen angel, listen, every demon, 
Satan himself, the devil, every man, angel, demon, Satan, every animal, all time, every bird, all kinds, see them, every fish, every insect, every single one of those little things, every plant, every particle, molecule, everything, were created by God to fulfill a specific purpose. They're all being sustained at this moment by God. Everything I just said. Every man, angel, demon, Satan himself, every animal, bird, fish, insect, plant, particle, everything sustained by God at this moment. And I'll go ahead and say it. I got about two more sentences. And the second one's a long run-on sentence, but I stand by it. Nothing is happening that God did not plan would happen or that he cannot stop at any moment. And if you're a thinker, you've wondered, why don't you stop that and that and that? God, you got the power. You could. Why did you even make them to be able to do that? i got to read that one again. Nothing is happening that God did not plan would happen or that he cannot stop at any moment. So the point of Romans 9, 10, and 11, as we come to this crescendo, here's the run-on sentence. The point is this. Everything, everything is right on schedule, fulfilling God's purposes, and that his ways are rooted in his wisdom, and as such, they are the best methods to bring about those purposes and plans, and that by saying that sentence that I'm still in, you and I will choke on such a saying because it is too deep for us. You won't get it. I don't get it. Everything's on schedule. God's bringing about his plans and purposes. It is going to happen. The way he's doing it is not how I would do it. The way he's doing it is the best way to end up fulfilling his plans and purposes. And it's all over my head. And if I really believed, verses 33 through 36, if you really believed it, what would happen to us? Write it down. We would be fearful and reverent. We'd be very fearful. If you're new here, and this is kind of the first time you've heard this, you're probably thinking, let me get this straight. I forget your name, but preacher, the way you made this sound today, we're just like lumps of clay that God can do anything he wants to with. If you ever understand that, your tone toward God will be respectful. Number two, we will not be arrogant. Let me get this straight. I'm just a lump of clay. We're in tournament time, right? And a lot of us fan bases are going to get real cocky if we win. When we haven't done a thing. How can we be arrogant? The thought hits me. What is man that thou art mindful of him? God, who am I that you would even think about me? That you would choose me? That you would lay out a plan for me? That you would let me be part of your grace, mercy, trophy of honor plan? I'm not anything. I'm certainly not better than anyone. There's no arrogance here. Third thing. We would be thankful. You're like, yes, we should be grateful. We should be grateful because it's got to go next step to being thankful. God, I'm going to actually say some things I'm thankful for. Number four, what would we do? We'd be fearful and reverent. We couldn't be arrogant. We would be thankful. But we would love and worship and praise. Today we complete three chapters which finishes 11 chapters. Listen, the most influential section of theology in all of Scripture. We're, we're, today we finish. In three weeks, we begin the practical section. Theology. And you're probably thinking, I'll be glad when we get some application and practicality because I'm tired of this theology. Listen, doctrine must be first, but doctrine must go somewhere Doctrine is first, theology is first, but it must lead us to love and to worship and to praise. Worship is not just emotion stirred by instrumentation or vocals. By the way, those are out there. We get goosebumps at just music. We get goosebumps at some crazy vocalist or harmony. That is not just worship. 
Worship can be only instrumentation. It can be only a vocal. But it's something in that that drives you back to some truth that you know about God. And that theology comes in. It meets those vocals and it meets those instrumentation. And then worship starts happening in spirit and in truth. My spirit is engaged by truth. And if you read all of chapter 9, 10, and 11 and you, and you step back and say, I don't understand it. Jeff, I've got way more questions than I had than when we started this thing. I have a few more answers, way more questions. But I love because I'm nothing. And I get in on this awesome plan. And I have a burden for the lost. But I love him. And to him be the glory forever and ever and ever for me. I want to end on this. Amen. And you say, is that all? Well, chapter 12 is coming. And I believe if we really believe verses 33 to 36, we would serve him with our life. If you really believe the end of chapter 11 then you'll enact verses 1 through 8. You'll serve God with your life. You're like, hey, I'm a made thing. I'm going to do what I was made to do. 